As we begin this morning, um, I'll start with a story. Um, I walked into the hospital room of an aging woman who is a great saint. And she has taught and discipled probably more women than most of you know. And she's enjoyed incredible health. And she's now past 80. It's the first time in her life that she's really had significant pain. And while I won't go into the details of the situation, uh, she's experiencing a great deal of pain, and it's been going on now. Uh, it has, it, at this particular point in her life, it had gone on for, for quite a period of time. And I walked in, and that day I was there just to be muscle, to help her get back and forth to uh, the doctor's office because her husband wasn't able to do so, and that's a whole other story. But, but as I walked into the room with my all-knowing wisdom from God... I walked in, and there's two ladies standing over her. One's got a Bible on her nightstand completely laid out, and she's pointing at her like this. I'm not making this up. This is what it was. This is my picture when I walk in the room. And then the other lady's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is what they're saying. Rebuke those doctors. Tell them you're not taking any of that medicine. You're going to stand on the Word of God. And she, she was quoting Scripture and pointing in her face. And the more she talked, you could see the fear, you know, in this lady's eyes. She was in real crises. Now, understand, she's got real problems health-wise right now. But they were concerned that she was full of fear and anxiety. Of course, she's just gotten a report that the potential of a life-threatening thing after all these months of, of, uh, of um, uh, pain, there's something that possibly could take her life. Well, let me, let me see how you do on that five minutes after somebody tells you you're going to go. Well, listen, if you do well, praise Jesus. You need to be teaching today and not me. But it takes me a bit to even trust Jesus for that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? Just trying to be real. And so they sat there, and then they, they said to me, so Tim, what, you, what, what word would you give her? What word would you give her from the scripture today? Well, honestly, it was pretty early in the morning, and I just came there to be muscle. So I wasn't in Jesus mode. I wasn't in pastor. I definitely wasn't in counselor mode. And I said, I, I, uh, "God's able." That's all I could get out. Now an amazing thing happened. They immediately saying, "Oh, praise God! What wisdom from above!" I knew you'd have exactly the right scripture. And the other lady's going like this. And the other one's going, see there, I told you, Tim would tell you the same thing. Well, I didn't even know what I said. It just kind of blurted out. Now, I'm not mocking these people, but here's what I want you to see. Their theory is this, that the Bible is like a genie in, the bob, in, a, in a bottle. And all I've got to do when I've got a trouble is drop that thing open and rub it. And miraculously, life starts pouring out of it. And I'm telling you, I was there. And after I started getting her to the doctor's office, I just got incredibly angry. Because they don't get it. They weren't any help at all. Now again, if you've, if you've pointed at somebody in their hospital room and been doing that, well, I'm sorry. Uh, just don't tell anybody because you'll look really bad today. But I do want you to consider with me that there's some things that are incredibly difficult for us to consider. And, and the whole part of this week that we're going to be discussing is this idea of the disciplines of the Christian life. And my big question is, is what if we got it wrong? Now, disclaimer, you're my witness. Tim Lester and Abiding Life Ministries, Karen Lester, Betty Wales, all of us have a firm belief in the Scriptures as being written by God himself through the inspiration of man. Everybody heard that, right? I believe the Bible. Here's another thing. I actually use the Bible to teach from. So you see, we're all on the same page here, right? But here's where I'm not on the page with a lot of people. The idea is, and I grew up with this, maybe you didn't, and if you didn't, praise Jesus. And if you're kind of new to your faith in Christ, don't, if anybody ever tells you what I'm about to tell you right now, don't buy it. The idea is, is if I'm sinning, I probably just need to re read the Bible more and do a better job of having my uh, morning devotionals. 
Because the, the measure to which I experience the abundant life is in direct correlation percentage-wise. This is what people would say that would buy this. To how much I read the Bible and how much I pray. There's only one problem. I have people in my office. I had four this last week. They're all diligent students of the Scripture. And all people <clears throat> who had studied the Scripture. And uh, perhaps you're like some people who are incredibly disciplined people and they've studied the Bible again and again and again and again, but they're still kind of wondering, where's the abundance of life that Christ talks about in John chapter 10, verse 10? I've come to give life and to give it abundantly. Or maybe you're like some people like myself who have a really good heart, but I am the single least disciplined person I know on the planet. And I'm glad to argue that with you, but if you ask my wife, she'll be happy to tell you, I'm the single least disciplined person on the planet. And I can't even tell you how many of those uh, Bible study things where you fill in the blanks and your prayer requests and all this. And those are great. I am not even mocking those. So if you, you do those and do well with them, praise Jesus. But I'm telling you, I do great for about three weeks and three or four days, and then I lose the book. And then I'm faced with the moral dilemma to lie to the people that I'm meeting with to tell them, oh, man, I just forgot my book. No, I lost my book. You see, I'm just not that disciplined. And I'm not saying I should never do one of those, that there isn't any value in one of those. But maybe you're one of those people that isn't, is not necessarily naturally disciplined. And you're going, well, then I'm in deep trouble because if having abundance in the Christian life is about being perfectly disciplined all the time, I'm not perfectly disciplined about anything, so I guess I'm just going to be, at, at best, I'm going to be one of the dregs that Jesus barely lets squeak in the door, you know, at the end of heaven. Because I really didn't apply myself and have my prayer time in the way I should have or, or study my Bible. And <clears throat> but I'd like to suggest to you that there's something more in the disciplines. There's something more in the disciplines. And I would suggest to you that what if the disciplines come naturally out of an interactive, synergenic, nice word, huh, relationship with Jesus. What if it is not a series of to-dos, but instead a daily participation with the living Christ who has decided to make his home in me because I decided to accept his incredible gift that he gave for me. That he came looking for me when I couldn't choose him. And he came looking for me when I was his enemy. And he began that relationship with him. And he intends to continue that, not based out of something that he now gives me a big long list of things to do, but instead intends to interact with me in such a way that all of those disciplines become a natural outflow of being, me being with him. And I promise you, if you're frustrated with that, we're going to look into that and describe it to you. Uh, much more. But <clears throat> I would suggest to you, just like we use the word synergy in our businesses today, that's a big, big bugs word in businesses. It's when we bring two or three groups together, and they might be pretty good at one thing together, but what they do is they come together and they actually create something that could have never existed in and of itself. Well, quite literally, it's the promise given in Scripture, is I have the living creator of the universe who is now living in me. Christ is in me. He is my life. My identity is wrapped up in Him. All of those concepts that you guys are taught and retaught over and over again here, and I'm glad that, that you are. And as I walk with Him, there is something that happens that I could not accomplish if I was walking apart from Him. And I'm not even talking about doing bad things. If I was walking what Paul calls in the flesh, if you've uh, done some study along those kinds of things. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, but there's a synergy when I'm walking in the Spirit. And I actually have the realities of Christ's life within me pouring themselves out of me. Christ has already worked something in me, so now he finds a way to have those things find an expression. And I'm going to tell you that we'll look at this week. I believe that, that the promise that says that if you just study your Bible and pray that you're going to experience the abundance of life, I don't buy it. Uh, by the way, do I believe in the Bible? Oh, yeah. Do I believe it's worth studying? Oh, yeah. But I want you to hear this. It is not this genie in a bottle that I rub. The disciplines are so much more. And so <clears throat> I would tell you this morning we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this idea of the idea of, of, of dissonance is the path 
to the abundant Christian life. And you say, well, Tim, I thought we were talking about disciplines. What if we got it wrong? Well, we are. We're just going to talk about the first one right now as we sort of unpack this. There is a discipline of the Christian life. And you're going to discover as we do this over the next, this evening, Monday evening, Tuesday evening, any of those that you can join us for, the whole goal is to ask this. If it's not just that, if I'm perfectly read the Bible and I do all my Bible study times, you know, when I'm supposed to do them, how I'm supposed to do them, in the right amount of time, that if it's actually more than that and it's a natural outgrowth of our relationship with Christ, what is that going to look like? I'm even going to tell you that if you fail to participate with him as he leads and prompts you, you'll go to heaven, but you might actually experience hell on this earth for the rest of your life. You'll never experience the abundance that he offers. So, with that in mind, we're going to talk about this first discipline, which is dissonance, the path to, a, uh, to a, a abundant living. Now, I first ran on dissonance uh, when I was about 17 years old. Now, now in my area, I sound like a hick. You guys, get, have, some of y'all got a, a draw. Have you noticed that? You do. Y'all got a draw. I don't have the draw y'all got, but... But I have a draw, and I'm from Maryland, and they think I came from the backwoods, grew up in a, like a one-room house, sat on the porch with a PBR and a cigar, went, you know, at age five. That, I mean, that's honestly kind of the way they view me. But thank you very much. I grew up on the University of Tennessee campus in Knoxville, Tennessee. Go vaults! There's no, there's no amens there, I guess. Okay. No, but I, I grew up in the city, and whether or not you believe it or not, I ain't no slouch. I grew up going to ballet, an orchestra, and every other cultured thing you can imagine that I never had an experience with. That was that I'm, I'm, I was there. And so at 17, there was this great thing advertised, and I'd been to the orchestra before, but it, it was a current rock band that was really big in America, and they were going to play with our symphony orchestra at the University of Tennessee. Excuse me. Uh, if, even if you don't go to the University of Tennessee, everybody calls it their university because, you know, all that really matters is the balls. And so, so I went to this concert. And first of all, the main reason I went, I thought, how can you have classical music and rock go together? So that in itself was dissonance to me. Now, I don't know if you guys know what dissonance is, but dissonance in music anyway is the whole idea that I have two chords that I put them together, and when you put them together, they just don't sound right at first hearing. But if you have a maestro, he puts them in th together in a score of music, um, and somehow when it comes to the time to put those two things together, it's absolutely magnificent. And so they promoted this concert not as two different styles, but also that they were going to use as much dissonance in the music and what was being done. And it was pretty incredible. And I got news for it. When I got out of there, because I'm kind of a music guy, my heart was just going... Because it was cool. As a matter of fact, there's, there's a pretty well-known guy that does orchestra, and I can't remember his name because I really don't like classical music that much. Um, but uh, he said once... I am equally bored with Guns N' Roses. And then he named his other counterpart in the field of classical music. He says, I'm bored with them both because they never use any dissonance. He said, dissonance is where the life of music comes alive. It's where the drama in music happens. It's where the emotion, the pathos comes alive. Now, those of you who actually are actual musicians, I can play the guitar and on uh, about the first 10 minutes you think, wow, Tim's an amazing musician. After 10 minutes, you know I know nothing, and you might as well give me a banjo with one string on it. I mean, I'm just not that good. But I have discovered this thing about dissonance. And I believe there's incredible dissonance in the Christian life and even in life itself. Now, let me just show you. You get real dilemmas in everyday life experience. You know, like you discovered that, <clears throat> that you left something off your taxes, and you really should have reported it, and it was a rather significant thing. Well, you got to... You got real dissonance. There's that part of you, that more character of you, that says, you know, you know, I, I, I don't like paint. That, that part of you says, I'll obey the laws of the land. But then there's this other thing in there going, you know, the government's taking half of what I have anyway. Why would I? Hey, it's their mistake. They didn't catch the thing. You, you follow what I'm saying? Dissonance. It's two opposing concepts that are coming together. And then there's things like this, like this last here in the last month or so, um, 
uh, and my wife and I have had several diagrams about this, uh, uh, discussions about this, uh, so she'll be shocked to hear what I'm about to tell her. Uh, we recently discovered camping, like, well, glamping, really, it's more than anything else, but because I don't, she doesn't camp. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and we got all ready, and I got generators for the back, and we had them all locked up because there's thieves in the world. And um, interesting thing happened. All the keys right before we left disappeared. Well, I didn't technically say she lost them. But, you know, there's a way you can kind of communicate that, you know, I don't know what happened to them. They were there, and they're just gone, and the only other person had anything to do with it was you. Okay, well, now, let's face it. You say, what's that have to do with dissonance? Well, literally, 30 minutes before we were leaving on this trip, I have this little black bag that's out in the car right now. And in the pocket, I had taken it on vacation because I was going to tag all the keys to the camper. And I put all the keys to all the locks in that little thing and forgot that I'd put him there, outsmarted myself. And then, of course, basically blamed her for losing the keys. Well, I had to go have all those locks drilled out when I got back from vacation. So it cost me, you know, 150 bucks all total. I guess it's all said and done. And we started to come on this trip, and I looked and saw those keys, and all of a sudden I experienced dissonance. There's something Emmy told me that I ought to tell her she was right, but I know what happens. There are so few times I'm right, I really don't like to admit when I'm wrong because it just adds to the proof that I, well, you get the point, dissonance. But there's dissonance in the Christianity too. And here's one of the things. Did you know that systematic theology is an attempt to resolve dissonance that I actually we're going to look at together with Jesus here as we move along? The systematically, when there's, when there's dissonance in our life, whether it's in everyday life experience, in Christianity, and those kinds of things like that, just like when people hear dissonance in music, they go, ooh, ooh, that, ooh uh, is that supposed to be like that? And they want it to be resolved. Well, we want to resolve when there's dissonance in our life. And it's when we believe one thing, but there's something else happening that's making it hard for you to make those two things work together. You follow what I'm saying? And I promise you, we're going to look at some examples together. I believe, now, you understand that I'm a seminary graduate, so I'm not even saying there's no value in doing a seminary thing and all that. But I want you to understand that a lot of people, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people that overvalue systematic theology do so because they want everything to fit in a box. They don't want any dissonance in the Christian life. Now, do I believe there's truth and absolute truth? Absolutely I do. So, so don't go places you think I'm going. Because I believe there's truth, but people go to systematic theology to try to resolve. There's a guy that's involved. I know this church has valued and even had some guys involved with the, I think you've had some folks come in with the 220 group, right? And they're a great group. They do, and they, but they teach Christ is your life. Your identity's wrapped up in Christ, and I'm excited about those guys. I know some of those guys personally, and they really do a great job. But <clears throat> there's a guy that has some loose connection with them, and I've had some chances to cross his paths. And honestly, if I were to describe him to you, I'd tell you he's a little twit. Now, that's not cussing where I come from, so if that's cussing in Texas, I'm sorry. But he's a little twit. Now, just hang on for a second. I promise I'll redeem myself. Here's why he's a little twit. He, uh, he, he teaches all this stuff that we all value, that Christ is my life. It's Christ who does the work within, uh, that my identity is lined up in Christ. If I got him up here and taught the major ideas of the theology of Christ, uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory, uh, he'd be 100% right. And I know that he's sort of set in his mind that he's going to put together some materials so people will buy them, and, and so they will have the, the benefit of his great wisdom. But I'm telling you, he's a little twit. Because every time I've been around him, for some reason, and I'm not that important, so just like you guys love me, and I appreciate that, but tr trust me, I'm not that big a deal. But every time I get around the guy, he gets mad at me. And he's embarrassed me on radio, or at least attempted to embarrass me on radio before, and on and on and on. He's just going on and on and on. And, and I'm just wondering, if you've got your theology so together, because he does, then how come you're so much in competition? And how much you got to be in one-upsmanship? Are, are you tracking with me? 
Okay, so in my mind, he's being a little twit. Of course, I can't think about that very long till I realize if he's a twit, what does that make me from calling him a twit? Because in my mind, I've gone to this place that I'm going to expose him, I'm going to show him where he is, and he can't treat me that way. Well, somehow my theology of Christ in me somehow escaped me now, right? So you see, there's this dissonance. I observe a guy who's treated me unfairly, who's taken advantage of me, who's humiliated me in front of other people, and, and, and that's wrong, right? Everybody go, yes. Okay. However, I'm feeling very justified standing in front of you calling him a really twit. You see, I don't care if you have your systematic theology together. Even if it's the stuff that we're all in agreement about, having all that together, there's a real dissonance if somehow... I haven't allowed that go from my heart to my head and allowed the disciplines of the Christian life, which, by the way, one of those happens to be loving an enemy and probably not calling him a twit in front of a few hundred people. If it doesn't go there, then all of a sudden this dissonance, so what I've got to do is justify why I get to call him a twit. And so what I'll do is I'll gather people around me that will also think he's a twit when I call him that. Are are you tracking with me? You see, this whole issue... Of dissonance is something you can't get away from. Um, it, it happens in marriage. In marriage, people get married, and then they discover the things they don't like about the person they got married to. And then after they discover that, they go, I'm not sure I want to keep doing this. And I'm honestly, Karen and my office is full all the time of people coming in. And now abuse means everything from they beat me half to death to they didn't bring me flowers. And I'm not making this up. Now, I understand what abuse is, and it's a really big deal. And we deal with that very specifically and very definitively. But here's what I want you to see. Then people who then got their feelings hurt, if they get to define it as abuse, it's the way they resolve the dissonance that says, I can't just walk out of this marriage. So don't think that I'm just, this is a nice intellectual discussion we're all having here together. So you can be impressed that Abiding Life Ministry did their homework. This is where the rubber meets the road. And you're going to see that I believe Christ calls us to live in this incredible dissonance. And again, one of the things that we will attempt to do in the middle of dissonance is we want to resolve the conflict. I don't want to have this internal thing where this still remains in me. This conflict remains in me. And I would tell you that Christ has called us to something more. Excuse me. As a matter of fact, rather than resolving the conflict, and by the way, if we have any psychologists in here, this is called, there's a thing called cognitive dissonance, and the idea is that we don't want to leave you a mess internally in your head, so God help you if you have anything that's conflictual that you don't have resolved. There's only one problem. If Jesus asks us to live in a holy dissonance, what does that look like, and how we can when we move into it? So we're going to move to the first John excuse me, and look quickly at this whole idea of dissonance. In First John, we see Jesus coming on. Uh, Jesus is coming on the scene. John's talking about him coming on the scene. And there are several things that he says, <clears throat> and, and we're going to read this passage together. Turn to the book of John. It's probably up there for you. And uh, here's what he says. The Word became flesh and was dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace, And John testifies concerning him. He cries out, this is the one of whom he said, he is the one who comes after me, uh, has surpassed me because uh, he was before me. From from the fullness of his grace, we have received one blessing uh, uh, after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you briefly about this passage. John is about 45 years into this and things aren't looking up for him uh, long term because Jesus hasn't come back. Uh, and so he's, uh, it's about 45 years, a- years after Jesus' return. And he says this, look, you guys got to get this. I was there. We've seen with our eyes. We've touched with our hands. And we know, I know this man named Jesus. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And he talks about how we are his and we've seen all that. But he says, I want you to know something. Jesus Christ was the vehicle through which grace and truth came onto the scene. But when there's grace and truth, it's the ultimate holy dissonance. 
Here's grace. Grace says, forgive people. But truth says, hold people accountable. Grace says, everything's going to be good. God's got this. But truth says, you're broken and there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff that needs to take place, a lot of healing. Grace says, it's going to be okay. Truth says, look, there's going to be, there's going to be a long road to, uh, to walk in the healing of Christ and for things to, to, to end up in a different place. Grace says, uh, <clears throat> I'm never going to leave you and there's nothing you can make me do to do so. But truth says, um, you know what? This is going to cause some tension in the relationship. And I could go on and on, but the best example I could give you of this is sort of the idea of good parent, good cop, bad cop at home, you know, when you're a parent. And, and it works pretty well. But let's go on to look at Jesus. Jesus, John says about Jesus, I spent years watching him, and I saw that he was full of both grace and truth. Now, I got news for you. When I'm calling somebody a twit, I want to have grace applied to me. But I'm willing, when I'm dealing with the twit, I want to have truth applied to him. Right? But you see, that's not the way it works. It's not what Christ has called us into. And again, we're going to un- unpack this. I want, I, I, um, I want truth when, uh, when I'm dealing with other people. But he says in verse 16, out of his fullness he received grace... We have received grace on top of grace on top of grace. But then in verse 17, he makes a very interesting statement. He says, the law, for the law gave, uh, was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, lest you make the mistake that I have made for the great majority of my ministry, here's my famous statement. You know, brother, you need to understand, sometimes we need to get a, gra- a balance between grace and truth. Well, I challenge you to show me that anywhere in the Bible. It's not there. It, as a matter of fact, the way the words are constructed, those of you who are great Greek students, by the way, I made an A in Greek, so I at least get to say one or two things about it. Uh, the way the things are constructed there, he says Jesus Christ was incredibly full of grace and incredibly full of truth. 100% grace and 100% truth. It's not the issue of a balance. <clears throat> Excuse me. He had the full measure of both of them, and it was brought to bear in every one of his relationships. Jesus, at least some people thought, that he, they wanted him to, to get it to where this conflict, this distance between grace would disappear. I wanted you to look with me briefly at, at several quick little places that this whole idea of, of Jesus's 100% grace and 100% truth and, and how he operated in or how, how it impacted his life and his relationships. Jesus was a messy guy, and nobody liked the way he did things. And so one example would be the woman at the well. You know this. Grace stopped Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it made him actually go to Samaria, uh, uh, to, Samaria to begin with, and it stopped him to talk at a woman who was a woman of, well, questionable reputation, and he engaged her, and grace encouraged him to engage her. But then truth did a very, very, very non-PC thing. He poked on her wounds. He says, where's your, where's your husband? Oh, well, I don't have one. He says, oh, yeah, you're right. You've had five, and the one you're living with right now is not. Do you know what would happen if I did that today? I went up to somebody and said, hey, listen, where's your husband? Knowing full well, she... and I did that kind of thing. I would be on the news about how insensitive I am from a, from a Christian perspective. But Jesus showed this woman incredible grace, then turned around and poked her wounds, and then he came back again, and he exhibited more grace. He says, hey, guess what? I don't care about any of that. I've got water for you to drink that you've never had before. And by the way, I'm the Messiah. He revealed himself as the Messiah to this crazy, mixed-up woman. It's the grace of God that he would do that. And of course... The truth is, as other, or other people thought was the truth, is they weren't particularly excited about the way he handled that. Then I have the tax collector, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, that, that song you learned. And he comes and he slithers up a tree to see Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to your house today. 
of course, there's this big dialogue about, is that cool? Because as you know, if you don't know, if you're new, new to the faith, uh, a tax collector was a guy who was a Jew that worked for the Romans, and he just didn't get what the Romans want. He ripped off his own people. So there's some history with the whole tax collecting thing. And so Jesus is dealing with him, and Grace says, I'm going to go to your house today, and granted, this guy had something stirred in his heart, and I get that, but he goes, but immediately there's a question about, and can't you imagine how the discussion went with his disciples? Oh, really? Why would you tell him you're going to go to his house today? Oh, well, well it's going to get worse than that. We're going to have him invite all his other unseedy, his seedy friends, and we're going to have supper with them too, and we're going to hang out with them. Well, what are people going to say about that? Well, Jesus isn't concerned because grace says it, but he still challenges this guy about the reality of what he's done wrong, and so much so that he ends up paying four times the amount that he had stolen. Let's move along. Excuse me. Um, the thieves on the cross. Do you remember that story? He's on the cross. The one thief says, hey, get us down from here. And the guy, other guy says, hey, listen, you're nut. We deserve this. Jesus said, yep, you're right. You do deserve this. True. But guess what? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, I know I'm overkilling here, and you're having to listen a little longer, but I want you to know this, this whole holy dissonance thing is not my plan. And I'm going to talk to you just briefly towards the end about how that all sorts out. <clears throat> Excuse me. But <clears throat> as we move along, we understand this dissonance uh, that he's talking about. Now we come to, the pa- to a passage <clears throat> where John is dealing with the Pharisees, with the woman that's caught in adultery. And they want to have quite a little discussion with him. And if you remember how it came along, they, they caught her in adultery, threw her at the feet of Jesus, and, uh, and uh, then Jesus has this dialogue with him. They said, the law says that you uh, ought, the Jewish law says you ought to kill this woman. Or we ought to have this woman killed. But of course, they didn't have the authority to do that by according to Roman law. Everybody tracking with me so far? And so they were saying, so here's the truth. And they want to play the law game. But Jesus says, okay, we'll play the law game. He kneels down and he starts writing, says the person, or at first he says, whoever hasn't sinned, cast the first stone. You remember this? So go get your rocks, let's do this. But the guy without sin has to cast the first stone. And he kneels down and he starts writing in the sand. Well, one really good thing came out of the 60s. There was a guy named Mike Warnke, and uh, he says his opinion. He said, God told him. I'm kind of doubting that. But, but he said, do you want to know what Jesus was writing in the sand when he was writing in the sand? He says, well, I can tell you what it was. It was their girlfriend's names. Well, honestly, I think it's probably a pretty good idea. But the point is, they all dispersed because Jesus beat them at their same game. Now, do you remember what he tells the woman? After everybody's gone, there's no accusers. Where are your accusers? He says, well, they kind of left. You kind of did that thing. And he says, go and leave your life of sin. Grace and truth mixed in the middle of the whole thing. The problem is Jesus didn't have any trouble at all living in this life of dissonance. As a matter of fact, I'd suggest to you that he calls us to us. Now, let's kind of get to where we're about to land the plane. So stick with me here. Finally, we come on to the passage uh, in in the last passage that we're going to look look at from the book of Luke. And as we're looking at that passage, we come on to Jesus, and it's the parable of the lost son. You remember that? And so the parable of the lost son, uh, uh, there's a book out now called The Prodigal God, whatever you want to call it. But as the story goes, the son wants his inheritance. He goes off. And Jesus is dealing, he's telling the story because he's dealing with a Jewish crowd. And this is the last of several parables in the middle of all that. And so here's what he says. Now, you you Jewish moms and dads, listen to me. Because I want to tell you a story. So he says, here we go. Uh, The guy leaves, he takes his inheritance, he goes off, he squanders it. And he ends up, at the end of the story, he ends up taking care of pigs. And it's worse than that. He has to eat pig slop. Well, any good Jewish mom and dad would have thought this. If you raise your sons right, raise them up in the way of the Lord, and, you know, they'll always follow the Lord. But the worst, worst, worst possible offense would be that your son would have to eat pig, and even worse, that he'd have to eat pig slop. 
So the fact that he disobeyed his parents, that he took advantage of his parents, and it was completely unfair, when they found out he was eating pig slop, they might not have done it out loud, but I guarantee you inside they're going, Yeah, baby! They're glad that he's getting what he deserved, right? But then the son comes back, right? Father sees him coming, verse 32. He comes around and he says, he sees him coming. Oh, excuse me, not 32, back up earlier in the passage. And he says he sees him coming from afar. And so he's telling the story to these guys. And he says he sees him coming too far. And he was filled with, you know, like any good pastor. You know, if you set that up right, people will go, Anger! Revenge! But it says, Scripture says he was filled with compassion. Right? And then, of course, the rest of the story is the son comes along, the other brother, and he's mad, and he goes and petitions his dad, and he says, look, I've served you my whole life, right? These are all stories you know. I'm just setting up this whole idea of dissonance. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, as he's doing that, an interesting thing happens. The father says, first of all, after he's pleading with him, and after the son says, I've been with you all these years, and you've never given me a fatted calf or all that. Then the father says this. Look, you could have had any of that any time you wanted. Why? Because you've always been with me. You had all this all the time. You've always been with me. And we're going to talk about this whole idea of being with Christ all along. But Jesus didn't have any problem because then the, the son, of course, was so angry. The other son was so angry. And I'd like to point out a couple of quick things. Do you understand that if this had happened in real life in most of the churches I've been in, we'd go, well, you know, this sounds a lot more like a jailhouse confession to me. You know, maybe we need to watch a little bit before we extend to him this kind of opulence, you know, the full favor of what it is to be in God. Am, am I crazy here or is the, am I right? I mean, we'd be tiptoeing around this hammer pretty easily. Now, we can have another discussion about wisdom and dealing with people and discovering their hearts and that kind of thing like that. But here's what I want you to see. At this point, the Jewish people were, would have been livid with Jesus because he'd blown away all of the concepts that they believed, like you get what you pay for. If you invest and obey God, you're going to get the blessing of God because they had a guy that was getting, getting the blessing of God in an image sort of way that had done nothing to obey. You see, Jesus was trying to blow apart the way, the idea, the concepts of what they were dealing with in terms of their view of how to walk with God. Dissonance is something that I want to resolve in my life. Jesus Christ says we're not going to resolve dissonance. And in the last little bit of our time together here, I'm going to give you some examples of this and hopefully give you a very clear explanation of why we're talking about this in the, in the context of disciplines. I'm going to tell you that the first discipline of the Christian life that will naturally happen once I recognize it and say, Jesus, you already operate. His life is within you. He doesn't have trouble operating with this dissonance in his dealing with people and individuals. And again, I'm going to tell you how that's going to flesh out in your life in a second. But it doesn't undo Jesus at all. He didn't have to get all those things all sorted out. And that Christ lives within you. So there is a first discipline of the Christian life, and it says, Lord, I'll yield to living in dissonance and having a lot of things just not resolved in my life. Now, if you're a really high analytical person that likes all your ducks in a row, you're saying, listen, he's only saying that because he's undisciplined. Well, no, because Jesus lived his entire life in that way. You see, Jesus rejected systematic religion completely because he knew it didn't work in terms of having the life that Christ had called them to. And so I want to flesh out a few things to say it with this whole idea of, of dissonance and say this to you. Christ has called us to a holy dissonance. And it's simple and it's available to every believer, but it first comes with a recognition. Now you say, well, Tim, what, why, why would you have me live in this dissonance? Because it seems like to me there'd be real value in having a very clear-cut path that we deal with people on and in the church. We want them to understand what they're, they're supposed to obey and all that. And we want to have that in a nice, neat little box. It's because Christ doesn't operate that way. Here's a few examples of some things you may have to deal with as you're dealing with this holy dissonance. I believe 
that obedience is better than a right heart. You do know the scriptures doesn't teach that. But functionally, we operate like, uh, excuse me, if a person's doing the right thing, it automatically means their heart is right. Any of you, any of you have a kid that was like the Eddie Haskell of the world, you that are older, that always did the right thing, but you just knew there was something else going on? I mean, we know that and we see that, but, but we've, we've bought into the idea that says obedience equals acceptance so long, <clears throat> excuse me, when it doesn't appear that that's working just right, we, we have a problem. Uh, if, if I get it right all the time, I'll be earning acceptance. What if God accepts somebody that's not getting it right all the time? Let me, let me give you an example. <clears throat> if you had two people, two believers in Christ, and one of them had learned how to play the game of Christianity. And so they knew what was going to keep them out of trouble and they're doing everything right in terms of keeping the dogs at bay. Nobody's looking at them. Or you had one person over here that it was very clear they're completely open to Jesus. They've got a broken heart. But they've got a whole bunch of messed up stuff in them. Let's be honest. Which one are we naturally drawn towards? Well, I'm drawn to the one, the one that's doing the right thing. I'm drawn to the one that's not causing me a problem. I'm drawn to the one that's not uh, uh, sucking my time dry because they're doing all the right things. But the truth is, is Jesus says, look, there's a reality that you need to accept. This guy that's got a heart that wants to obey God that's like still a complete mess in his life is a guy that has God's attention, his heart. And it ought to be the one that I look for and recognize there's going to be significant movement in life. Here's a few other examples, just to, get, just to give you a few. Um, if, if, I, if I can't live with, with dissonance in my life, I won't be able to tolerate the failures of others or in myself because tolerance or failure is not acceptable. If I can't live with dissonance, I, I can't tolerate other people who are on a journey to grow up in Jesus if their journey is actually causing me a great deal of pain and suffering. Well, so what's that look like? Ladies or men, those of you who happen to already be married, have you ever, don't raise your hand please, or elbow them. Has anything they ever done ever caused you any pain? And I'm not even talking about necessarily the obvious things where somebody goes out uh, um, uh, being unfaithful to their mate. Uh, what if God has got your mate in a place where he's taking them where he, they ask to go. Jesus, I want to grow up in you. And as a result of that, he starts uncovering that they have anger in their lives. He starts uncovering that there's, there's addictions they didn't even know that they had in their lives. And, and hooray for you, you get to live with them while God is dealing with that stuff. Well, I don't know about you, but I've had Christ deal with some things in me, and I haven't liked it very much. Because what he does, it's not that he's beat me up. He just lets me go ahead and do the stuff that was wrong, that was disobedient, so I'll get completely sick and tired of that. Well, you see, that doesn't compute in systematic theology, right? Because you're supposed to obey God. And the thought that God would actually use sin in my life to bring me to a place where I see my greater need for him, well, that doesn't compute. See, that doesn't fit in a nice little box. And if I'm married to the person that God's trying to show what is not the way, then it really gets messy. Am I right about this? You see, there are people in our world today that are completely unwilling to deal with any kind of unhappiness. And I'm not just talking about marriage. Anything that's unfair, inconvenient, or anything like that at all for the cause of seeing people grow up in Jesus. Now, do I understand that there are people that would use what I just said as a license to go sin and do whatever they want to do? Well, I know they can try. But you see, Christ is the way, and every other way is not the way. And so he's committed to make sure that you discover what is not the way. So it'll make sense to trust him as to what is the way. So Christ is going to leave a lot of these things going on all at the same thing, the thing uh, at the same time, this dissonance, if you will. Because if my mate or my friend is on this massive journey, it's very difficult to walk with him in the middle of that, uh, that struggle. I won't ever give my mate a chance if they screw up because they aren't holy like me. Mike Wells, our director, used to say there, there are people who are up and outers and down and outers. The up and outers are the people that 
you know, they do life right. I'm really righteous. You know, I do my Bible study. I do my prayer. Everybody sees me. And, you know, the truth is, is if you ask in the church, people would name me as one of the more spiritual people in the church. And then, of course, there's the husband or the wife, whichever one it is. You know, and they're struggling, and maybe they're just, they're 40 years old, and they're just now discovering they had a mess that they, they grew up with, and it impacts some of their behaviors right now. And, you know, you, you follow what I'm saying? In other words, they don't have it together. And, of course, when this woman or this man gets with their buds, they go, you know, I just, I don't even know why the Lord asked me to live with this. You know, I must, you know the proof that there's a God is, is that I'm living with this man or this woman. Well, anytime a person's talking like that, you know they're an up and outer. And if you are one this morning, repent. I get it that it's difficult to live with a difficult person, either in a marriage or in a relationship or, God forbid, in a church. But you get to live with those people because Christ is more committed to bring them along, if they're a believer especially. Christ is more committed to bring them along than they're probably willing to go with him at that particular point. So that means their whole life, has to, their way of doing life has to come undone. And here's the problem. If you don't know or unwilling to embrace dissonance, like I'm supposed to have a supportive mate, brother in Christ, friend, that are going to walk with me, and they're not going to treat me unfairly or unjustly and all those kinds of things like that. If you have to somehow to resolve that by saying, you know, no person should have to put up with that. I'm happy, and Karen's happy, to talk with you about some things that have to do the flip side of this is what do I do to say no to people that need to have somebody say no to them? But here's what I want you to get. Christ says, I can do as much in the middle of struggle and trouble as I can in the middle of things going really well. He really does. But if I try to resolve that, then I literally look for the shortest and easiest path to do away with this crazy stuff that God has allowed to pass to me. Now, I want to land the plane. And so I would share with you this with you uh, just as we close. One of the most famous passages in the world, as far as I'm concerned, is 2 Timothy chapter 3, 15, 16. They're going to put it up on the, on the board there. <clears throat> And it's the one, in some versions, says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be, the, be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You're familiar with this passage? The word of God is profitable for reproof, correction, and so on. Now, get that passage in your head. This particular version they have, and I like the version that's there, says be diligent. Uh, what I'm about to say right now is not because Tim is the greatest Greek scholar that ever walked on the planet. There are guys that are a lot smarter than me that agree with what I'm about to say. But I want to make the application as we close about this whole idea of accepting this dissonance, this disconnect. And so how do I respond and how does that become the path uh, to abundance? The word used for study there is a very interesting word because it's not how we would say it today. Now, I grew up, my dad built race cars. He always built 50 Ford Coupes. He built 12 of them for dirt track racing. And, uh, and he, uh, that's what he did for fun. And so he would bring me out to the car with him. And while I can tear apart a 50 Ford and put it back together, except for a couple of little things, he used to drive me mad. Because we'd go out to the car, and the, he'd raise the hood, try to start it, and so if it wouldn't start, he'd pull up two stools, and he'd say, just sit down. And he says, eh, we're just going to think on this a bit. And so we would talk through every single system that had to do with getting that crazy thing started. I don't know how many times, it feels like 4,000 times, we talked through what it would take to get a 54 coot started. And then after that, he'd say, now let's think about some of the things that could go wrong with it. So we'll check this and we'll do that. And, we'll do, you know, and, it, and it just went on. And I'm thinking, listen, somebody just kill me now. I heard I get to go to heaven. It just, he would... But he was trying to instill in me this whole idea of really looking at this thing. And you know what? We get it fixed. And to this day, I could probably draw every system for a 54 coupe. Now, I can't work on any other car, period. But I know a 54 coupe. It's because he would give diligence to looking at all the ins and outs. And then we'd actually start doing some of those things that would review or responding based on what we kind of understood was going on. So when you read the passage, study yourself approved. And the God's systematic theology has basically used this passage to say, see there, the Bible says so. If you study your Bible enough, 
then you're going to get it, and suddenly your life is going to be the way it's supposed to be. If you've, if you've ignored, we've been talking for a while, so I understand you're ready to go. But I want you to tune in for just two minutes. And so the first thing he says is, look diligently at your life in relationship to the Word of God, Jesus. Certainly, the Word, the word of God in terms of the Scriptures. But look diligently at life and how it works in relationship to Him. Secondly, he says, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. There's another passage in the Scripture, Romans chapter 12, that talks about this whole idea. Uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be stamped approved in the perfect will of God. The whole idea from that passage is this, that you get put through a testing fire. And at the end of the thing, God purifies, God purifies everything in you that doesn't need to be there. And what's left is you're the real deal. You're actually able to do the things that he's called you to do because of work that he has done on you. So <clears throat> the last thing he talks about in that passage is this, that excuse me, not only do I, do I look at it intently and review and see my life in relationship to that, there's a work that God's going to do to bring about transformation that at the end of it, I'm, I'm going to be the real deal. I'm actually going to, whatever it was God has called me to, I'm actually going to be able to do. But then he says, and rightly dividing the word of truth. <clears throat> the idea of rightly dividing is to set your path straight. So here's my call as I close this morning. Uh, Christ has called us to live in very sticky, unfair, messy kinds of situations. That's not news to you. But what I do want to challenge you to is this world, even in the context of good counselors, tells, tell us this. That if we have cognitive dissonance, the goal is to get rid of the conflict. To get rid of whatever's causing you stress so you can go on with life and be happy. I'm telling you this, that Christ has called you to more. And the more is to be with him like he talked about with that fellow. To be with him. And as you're with him, here's what that looks like. There are guys that are in here this morning, so I want to talk. I'm, this could be older guys, too. You could have been old and, and not cooperative with Jesus for a long time. But I especially want to talk to some of the younger fellows this morning. Uh, you're just boneheaded. You're just boneheaded. And I don't care if you read the Bible or don't read the Bible or come to this church or don't come to the church or come to some church regularly. You're just boneheaded. And you have never sit and taken an honest inventory and said, Jesus, would you show me what I'm doing in relationship to my mate? Would you show me what I'm doing in relationship to cooperating with you? To, to, oh, Jesus, I invite you to actually begin to order my life and really intently look at that. And to be willing, since you're with him, as he brings some things to Revelation, just start moving on. Because here's the thing. God doesn't show you stuff and then just leave you hanging. He's going to begin to walk with you as you start moving through those things. And by the way, the whole idea of directing your paths rightly is not that it's just like, okay, I've set my course, boom, we're going to go. It's more like, okay, course correction, course correction, course correction, because I keep finding out what doesn't work along the way. And you see, I don't like that because the truth is, and we were just talking about this, I would love it if I could be a legalist. You know, it fits in a box, make the list. But the problem is it doesn't work because I fail at it and then i got to try to insist that you do it. Christ has called us to a holy dissonance that demands that each day that I begin my life and invite Him in, that I walk with Him and that I'm willing to receive whatever is coming in terms of these crazy life that he's called me to walk in. The question is, is will you walk with him?